Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 152 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we're going to be talking all things perimenopause and menopause, which is a topic we get asked about all the time, but we haven't covered in its own dedicated episode per se. Before we jump into it, let's have a brief word from our opening sponsor for this episode, CrowdCow. Yes, CrowdCow delivers the very best craft meat from farm to your table. What I love about CrowdCow is that you get to learn about the breed, the style of beef, and you get to virtually meet the small independent ranch who produced the beef. It's the best way that you can vote with your dollar to decentralize our industrialized meat system, if you will, (laughs) and ensure that small independent ranchers are staying in business and you get the exact cuts that you want delivered right to your door. Yes. And I absolutely love their mission, which is to help people discover and access the highest quality craft beef and other meats and to bring people together, farmers and consumers, families and friends. When I first tried CrowdCow, I am an avid consumer of locally sourced meat, so I usually buy my meat at my farmer's market, and I've learned a long time ago that natural grocery stores like Whole Foods and other ones, even if they have a scaling system, often don't really give us the quality sourcing. It's a lot of lip service. So when I first tried CrowdCow, I wasn't sure what to expect, but I have been forever changed by their grass-fed, grass-finished, dry-aged ground beef. I've never had dry-aged ground beef, just wet-aged. And I'm telling you, the texture and the flavor profile is absolutely life-changing. I will never have another burger (laughs) without the dry-aged beef. Yes, and CrowdCal features 100% grass-fed, grass-finished beef, or you can pick pastured grain-finished beef if you have a preference, and A5 Wagyu from Japan, which is amazing, buttery, melt-in-your-mouth, such a treat, and it's always going to be the very best independent craft beef from producers within their network, so you can even narrow it down to specifically your region or where you want to source from, and then you can pick... um, what farm you actually get your products from. Awesome. Super cool. So from farm to table, go check out crowdcow.com backslash naturally nourished. You will get $25 off your first order as well as free shipping. And when you're on the CrowdCow website, check out the Allie Miller Naturally Nourished Bundle, which are the items that I select to feed my household. Again, go on over to crowdcow.com. Make sure you put in that backslash naturally nourished. That's where you'll get your savings and let them know that you learned about them from the Naturally Nourished podcast. Awesome. Do you want to tell listeners about the the bundle a little bit? The keto bundle? Yeah. Oh, well, um, 
Sure. <laughs> if you it guys has... want to eat like Allie. <laughs> this is true. So yeah, it has a whole uh, pasture-raised chicken. It has two pounds of grass-fed ground beef. It has chicken thighs, bone and skin on. We do that always. Uh, that's like our favorite, just easy week pan seared finish in the oven. And then it also has a cut to use for carnitas like pork shoulder or uh, rump roast that you can do in your slow cooker or your what is it called that people, these new kids are using? Instant pot. I was going to say the hot pot. Yeah. (laughs) Instant pot or however, but uh, I think slow cooker is the way to go for carnitas, but either way. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So super excited for today's episode um, because like Becky said, we get so many questions. Often when I'm talking like carb cycling or women's hormones, we're talking a lot about women that are of a cyclical age, you know, so we're talking about things like the follicular stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. And and these are hormones made by the pituitary, the part of the brain that regulates ovarian function, Um, you know, how our follicles uh, function and the release of the egg and the maturity of the egg and all so forth. Now, these are the same labs that we use to monitor menopause as do we use sexual hormones. And we did do an episode with Dr. Anna Kabeca where we talked about libido and getting your sexy back, but that was really broad on like all ages. So Becky, what are some other highlight episodes for people to get deep and dirty into women's hormones as a foundation prior to today? Definitely episode 44, which again was very foundational and kind of broad spectrum across the board, all ages. Um, keto and women's hormones was episode 121 that I think is worth looking at. And we did um, troubleshoot within that episode a couple of different questions about menopausal symptoms like hot flashes and insomnia a little bit. Um, and then that episode with Dr. Kabeca was 123, which I definitely think is worth taking a look at. But yeah. today is going to be very dedicated to perimenopause and menopause. Absolutely. All right. So let's just jump in and start by defining both perimenopause and menopause, because I think for a lot of women, it's just kind of like this specter of something that's going to happen at some point as they get older. And it's typically a a negative association, or at least a lot of the symptoms are a negative association of the hot flashes and weight gain and things of that nature. And and I think there's a lot of, you know, fear and and maybe misunderstanding even. Um, And this is good for the men listening too. So don't turn this episode off guys, because you can take some notes and kind of learn how you can support your lady through this whole process. So let's define first of all, menopause, then perimenopause and, and just some of the factors. Yes. So menopause officially marks the end of female reproduction. So it's a stage in which basically a woman transitions from menstruating, active menstruation, and it's usually designated by one full year without a cycle. Often we find a lot of women in this perimenopausal phase, and this can last from any period of, you know, that one year up into three years where a woman might go seven months without a period, have one period, go six months without a period, have a period. And technically they're not in a menopausal phase until they've hit that entire 12 cycles of absence of a period. Uh, so it's it's very interesting. And, and even Cleveland Clinic, for instance, cause, calls perimenopause 
even earlier before you hit menopause, upwards of eight to 10 years ahead of menopause in the late 30s or early 40s. And this is basically marked by a drop in estrogen. So when the primary female hormone of estradiol which is produced by the ovaries, starts to drop over time, um, then we can start to see irregular periods and other symptoms. And that's when we start to call that perimenopause. But I would say very clearly, a little funny caveat, and then I'll, I'll, I'll kind of distinguish of this, like Becky said, not just kind of putting your arms up in the air and being like, well, I guess this is the big thing. Sure. <laughs> Here I go. Just let my body tumble down the hill. <laughs> um, but so my mom, when I got married, um, my mom was, I think like maybe nine or 10 months without a cycle. And then when I came in town for the wedding, she got a period. <laughs> it's like one of those like classic, you know, women energy, emotional heartstrings, probably stress for my mom having like out of town company and all the things, but also like warm oxytocin flowing of love celebration. Uh, so I just think it's so interesting to connect that emotional, mental wellness element with sexual hormones. And, and we always kind of, we've talked about in other women's hormones episodes, how like women find their moon. And when you've lived with different roommates, your cycle time changes. And, you know, this happens throughout any age range and those dynamics. There was another client I was just working with that was on, I think her 11th month without a period. And then her daughter had a baby and she was in the hospital and she was like, and the next day I, I couldn't believe it. I got a period. I was like, yep, that's all that oxytocin coursing through that delivery room. <laughs> like, you know, your body was, your ovaries were surging. So I think it's pretty funny. Totally makes sense. That happened to me when I went off birth control. I didn't have a cycle for almost a year and that's almost menopause. And it was graduation day at my all women's college. And sure enough, wearing a white dress, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So oh, yeah. I think it's interesting. I just note, because I have a lot of women in their mid thirties and I'm coming at you guys, just, uh, I'm turning 35 this year. Right. And I am still tentatively planning to potentially have another child. My, my year is like 37 is like my close of the gate in my perspective. Um, but I have women, you know, early thirties, early forties that are putting their hands up in the air and being like, well, I guess I'm just heading into menopause. And I would say, you know, we need to really also start to think about when our body is having imbalanced menstrual cycles, what other factors, like listening to our episode on hypothalamic amenorrhea, right? So if your body is in a sympathetic fight or flight stress mode, you're going to suppress reproductive sexual hormone productivity, right? Um, and so there's other factors that could, I guess, catapult or drive you into an expression of menopause. And that may not be your body's natural clock. And that may not mean that you have to go with it. That means that you may be able to find a way to dig to the deep why and support a more gradual transition of your sexual hormone. Sure. And that's a lot that we talk about with clients in use of things like bioidentical hormones of kind of like you know, softening the blow, if you will, and not making it that intense of a, a transition or kind of uh, dragging things on a little bit longer and, and smoother. Absolutely. Okay. Um, and then a couple of reasons for hitting menopause earlier than kind of that typical age range that you mentioned. So I think stress is the, the biggest one for certain. High stress that's not managed well. 
And so this could be someone that's then also undersleeping or undernourishing. We can see micronutrient deficiency trends. We can see, of course, familial history. So I'll always ask that if a woman's like, you know, early 40s and they're like, I think I'm just starting menopause. So I'll always ask them, do you know when, when your mother went through menopause? Um, so checking in on that. Uh, smoking can exacerbate or drive uh, earlier onset to menopause uh, just as a carcinogen and a toxin for the body and that can drive distress to the system. Of course, if you've had an oophorectomy, right, a, a full hysterectomy, and even partial hysterectomy where you maintain your ovaries, there could still be some uh, physiological stress to that area. Uh, but definitely if you've had an oophorectomy, then you've had your ovaries removed. So that's right there at that point going to drive you into a menopausal phase. And within that being said, also, if you're you're going through cancer treatment for estrogen dominance of any form where you're on a uh, estrogen antagonist drug, that's going to drive you into menopause. That's the mechanism of, of treatment you know, beyond whatever process you went through. Okay. And then let's back up and just talk a little bit more about some of the mechanisms in terms of gland shifts, hormonal, actual hormonal changes that occur during this time. So menopause starts to occur when your ovary. So again, we're talking about the ovarian hormone production, which is why if you've had a nephorectomy, which means a removal of your ovaries, you're in menopause. And that's kind of one of those that just you are, right? So you're relying on otherwise exogenous, meaning like hormone replacement therapy or outside hormone to manage. Menopause typically occurs when the level of female hormones are going to fall and your ovaries stop producing eggs, right? Um, so we're thinking of a, a decline that is slow and steady of our reproductive hormones, our estrogen, as well as our progesterone, as well as even our androgens. So we can even see drops in DHEA, which we know declines with age starting in our 30s, some say even in our mid-20s, as well as beyond the DHEA, we think of our testosterone, which can play a big role with you know muscle and libido and other uh, health-supporting influence on metabolism. So these are the hormones that drive the flow of your menstrual cycle, your estrogen and progesterone changes, which we've covered, like I said, quite well in other episodes, so I won't go through that. But uh, your body over time starts producing you know, less hormone and over time starts producing less eggs. So around age 51, your ovaries stop producing eggs completely. And, and that's when you start to not have a cycle. There's also transition time to note that's important. A lot of women in a perimenopausal phase will go through pretty severe breakthrough bleeding where they'll have periods lasting 11 to 15 plus days. Um, and they can even drop to anemia, you know, pretty severe loss of blood, um, iron deficiency. And this often occurs when the hormone transition is not balanced with ample progesterone. Um, so often a doctor will use high dose of a form of progesterone to try to uh, stop that menstrual flow. And as you guys know from listening to prior female hormone podcasts of mine, remember the progesterone drop is what gives the cue. That's basically like the, the drop of the dam gates or whatever that gives the cue for menstrual cycle. So, you know, when progesterone levels are chronically low in individuals that are going through perimenopause, 
they will bleed pretty severely, especially if they have endometrial lining buildup. So if their tissue has built up for whatever reason, that also will create more heavy menstrual cycles, which can be associated with perimenopause and I think are often not as discussed. You know, we, we tend to think of it's just like, oh, you start to go longer periods without a period, but for some women, it's the opposite. They start having longer, painful, heavy periods. Yep, definitely. And would you say typically that progesterone drops and kind of declines sharper, like first before estrogen? Is that why that happens in some women? I believe so. And I attribute that to that pregnenolone steel, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's this idea that progesterone is very easily taken to be converted into cortisol, that primary stress hormone, right? Whereas estrogen is not going to be metabolized in that same way. So if it's a high-stressed individual, they're likely going to have some form of estrogen dominance, whether that means that they are producing excess estrogen or the more commonly seen, they're producing a normal amount of estrogen, but their progesterone is so suppressed that that's expressing as estrogen dominance. And that's where we'd create that that issue. Okay. Got it. Um, Let's talk more about some other common symptoms during maybe start with perimenopause. I know there's a lot of of overlap, but um, perimenopause and menopause, what are um, beyond the irregular cycle lengths and, and maybe heavier bleeding, as you mentioned, what else are we looking for? Sure. So we're going to see kind of the common like burnout aging symptoms first. (laughs) So it's just a delight to get into, right? So, uh, you know, things like loss of libido or sex drive, concentration difficulties, brain fog, forgetfulness, uh, muscle aches, and just overall fatigue. We can also see headaches within that world. We can see changes in hair, skin, um, sometimes nails, but but often more hair and skin. We can see breast tenderness or weight gain based on the variance within the sexual hormone. We can see worsened PMS. Uh, we can see heavier, clottier cycles um, or lighter, again, on either end of the spectrum, and definitely can see irregular cycles, as well as um, more prone towards uh, urinary tract infections. Got it. And then any distinction or difference of of things that might happen when you're a little bit later in the game, menopause or a lot more of the same? I think louder, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I didn't mention yet the hot flashes and night sweats. And I think that those are kind of a classic, those occur in perimenopause and menopause. Uh, and uh, also I would discuss, I think we're going to unpack a little bit more of mechanism of a hot flash, but uh, often it has to do with the amount of circulating hormone and how that hits a receptor site. So it's you know, all hormone. Remember you guys is like a lock and key mechanism, right? So as that circulating hormone level declines, um, that receptor is not fulfilled and that can create some vasoconstriction, which can create significant body temperature shifts, especially in the evening time. Uh, we can see more prone towards hot flashes throughout the day as well with hormone fluctuation. And this can also be more exacerbated with a stress response because we know cortisol can also drive that like middle of the night waking and sweats and what have you. Uh, we can see mood changes more dynamically. In fact, the perimenopause and menopausal uh, population 
is one of the highest prescribed antidepressant and anti-anxiety drug. Uh, so that's a big area where we know that hormone plays a big influence on mood. So mood swings as well as anxiety, irritability, short fuse, brain fog again, um, and then you know just more significant of these influences as well as beyond the UTIs, vaginal dryness and uh, vaginal atrophy. Uh, so we can see thinning of the tissue or breakdown of the vaginal tissue as the estrogen level comes down. And that's definitely concerned for quality uh, intercourse and connecting with your partner. And then um, we can also see as the aging process goes on more frequent urination. And, and that kind of connects with that bladder uterine area with just time and age and weight and, and process. Sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit. We'll get into at least some of those symptoms later on and, and um, some natural solutions, but let's talk about some of the current treatments or prescriptions that are used for relief of symptoms in conventional medicine. So obviously hormone replacement therapy would probably be the first place to start um, in terms of unpacking a pretty controversial therapy. Yeah, I know. I'm like, oh gosh. Um, so yes, I mean, that's the go-to and that's what most general practitioners, so your primary care physician uh, or your OBGYN, um, some women transition care from an OBGYN to just a primary care and have them continue with a pap smear or whatnot. Um, and sometimes they make that decision with their doctor of, of whether that's necessary based on sexual activity and what have you. Uh, but the primary intervention is estrogen therapy just like with any age process and hormone, right? So if you're 17 and you lost your period, we're not going to look for the root cause. We're going to give you hormonal birth control to tell your body how to have a period. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if you're 24 and you're having a regular cycle, we're not going to ask why. <laughs> we're going to give you particular, maybe a little bit more calculated and formulated hormone distribution if you're looking for fertility. Well, we see the same thing with the aging process. It's HRT or hormone replacement therapy. And this is generally in the form of a synthetic. It is um, most common commonly going to be a conjugated estradiol. And this can be delivered in the form of pills, patches, gels, creams. And um, again, the, the difference for listeners that aren't familiar of bioidentical and um, something that is prescribed as a hormone replacement therapy, which is through the FDA, right? Anything that is a drug intervention, right, it has to be patentable. And in order to be patented, it cannot be naturally occurring in nature. So when we're even looking at the comparison of, for instance, um, I just had a patient last week showing me, oh, I have a friend next door who's a doctor. He gave me these samples of this fish oil. Can I swap this out for your EPA DHA extra? <laughs> and um, I, I looked at it and I was like, well, so you see how where it says ethyl ester triglycerides, <laughs> you know, th this is where they're basically taking your EPA and DHA, the omega-3 fatty acids that naturally occur in fish oil in the liver of the fish, right? And we're taking those compounds and structurally modifying them so that that, that manufacturer can stamp, a, stamp a, pan, a patent on that. And, you know, most of the up-to-date research on the benefits of, of the compound are looking at them in the way that they occur in nature. So when you're taking estrogen or progesterone or testosterone, if you're taking it from a medication that is FDA approved, you are not taking a bioidentical hormone. You are taking a 
hormone replacement drug that mimics the hormone structure. So it's a key that can fit that lock hole, but it is not bioidentical or it is not identical to the way that your body produces that key. There's a varied configuration and that often has opportunity for also a varied expression and often not optimal to that of what your body would naturally produce. That's a really important distinction to make. Um, and so interesting that the patent piece of it for sure. And it's, it's super interesting in the sense that most doctors don't even think twice when they prescribe estrogen therapy. Um, and yet they would goff at something that's natural. And, and I don't think they just take the time to maybe understand the variance within that. Um, so there, there are many that do, and that's wonderful. And I think that that's why bioidentical hormone use is increasing, but you know, I mean, don't even get me started on like the the back stories of I think we talked in episode forty four about like Premarin mm-hmm. right which was like that first HRT and you know the, the structural variances of progestin versus progesterone and how those metabolize very differently in the body. Sure, um, and then you mentioned antidepressants being prescribed very frequently. Um, we also can see you know just prescription creams for vaginal dryness as you mentioned. Um, Sure. And many of those are HRT as well, but there are some that are just lubricants, especially those that are like over the counter. Um, And then, yeah, antidepressants definitely as a first line of defense, instead of trying to figure out a a why or or what to support the mood swings. And I will, in the end of this episode, don't worry, guys, give you all of my favorite tools for all of the the more foundational approaches. And then there's even use of like uh, one-off drugs like gabapentin, for instance, maybe for use of migraines or um, can be used for some potential focus, even though it's more of a neurological drug, uh, some potential focus for the migraines, also in association with flashing and and some of the the neurological connection there. Yep. I've definitely seen it used for hot flashes, although at least in anecdotal experience from clients, not as effective or not so effective. Sure. Um, All right. So let's dig into maybe some of the more functional treatment modalities, um, starting off with CIRMs. So what the heck does that mean? (laughs) Um, Are (laughs) they worth trying? What are CIRMs? Are are some naturally occurring? How does this work? So I think of CIRMs a little bit as uh, like a downstream natural tool versus an upstream tool, if you will. Uh, What they stand for are selective estrogen receptor modulators. So S-E-R-M-S. It's, you know, all all of those, it's an acronym. Selective estrogen receptor modulators. And so basically they activate or block estrogen receptors in certain areas of the body and are supposed to target particular receptors. And this is what should make them safer potentially than using estrogen alone. So what this does is essentially it aids in the shuttling or the expression of the circulating hormone in the body by blocking or activating a receptor. So again, if going back to that like lock hole and key uh, mechanism, right? If there aren't enough keys circulating, if there's a recessive receptor, we might put a sermon to block that recessive or the less active receptor so that the little amount of keys that are circulating hit the more activated receptor so you can get more of that estrogenic expression. Or if they're giving you estrogen therapy or estrogen hormone in a, whether it's synthetic or in a, uh, biological form, either way, you can use a CIRM to kind of 
block those that are higher effective so that you don't get too much circulating. So you can kind of use them in an offense or, or a defense, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, and how would that relate to like the different types of estrogen receptors that we actually have in the body? How do SERMs relate there? Um, and then let's give some examples because I think it's a, a new concept for a lot of listeners. Sure. And I mean, the most common serum is soy and that's why silk, soy milk really capitalized on that um, in the early 2000s or late 90s of, of, you know, soy being like this saving grace for perimenopausal women. But yeah, the important things to understand are that there's two different receptor sites. So there's an alpha and a beta receptor and the physiological functions of the estrogenic compounds are going to be primarily influenced of which receptor that compound hits, right? So our estrogen signaling pathways are selectively stimulated again or inhibited depending on a balance of the activities between the estrogen receptor alpha or estrogen receptor beta. And the alpha uh, receptor site is going to be found in the endometrium. So your endometrial lining, right? We're going to see that in uh, breast cancer cells. We're going to see that alpha in ovarian cells and in the hypothalamus, remember the primary part of the brain that regulates that HPA access. Uh, we know that the beta receptors are documented more in, they are also in ovarian cells, um, but they're also going to be in our kidney, brain, bone, heart, lungs, intestines, as well as our endothelial cells. So the, the alpha is definitely more of what we think of as like an estrogenic, if you will, especially when we're talking about like breast cancer and ovarian cancer risk, we're worried more about that alpha receptor. And the beta receptor has positive expression as far as being more anxiolytic or more naturally anti-anxiety, also supportive of bone health and preventing bone loss when estrogen levels are declining. Got it. Okay. And then um, soy, you said as an example, um, what about other serms that are naturally found in, in foods or could be supplemented with? Yeah. So, well, and, and, and even before that, I just want to unpack on the hormone level. So we've talked about in women's hormones, how there's three types of estrogen. I just want to unpack this one more time. Um, so estradiol again is the common, uh, estrogen that's made by the ovaries. That's the primary one that's going to be elevated during menstrual age and estradiol. We also know of that as E2, um, that binds equally to both alpha and beta receptors. As you go into menopause, your estrone or your E1 picks up and the estradiol comes down. And E1 has actually more of preferential activity to the alpha receptors. So that's one of, I wanted to call this out because that's one of the influencing factors of if someone goes really high E1 based on their decline of E2, that's going to make them more expressive towards the estrogen dominant symptoms, right? That they may not have expressed prior and also anxiety um, sleep disturbances, not having that balance of that beta receptor. Whereas the estriol, your E3, and soy and other natural compounds are going to have more prone tendency towards the beta receptors. And these are the ones that are thought of to be safer when we're talking about um, hormone-related cancer risk, as well as, again, more mood-stabilizing effects. So estriol, E3, when we're using bioidentical hormone as a replacement therapy, anytime 
someone is taking an estradiol, instead of just doing a conjugated estradiol as a prescription that's synthetically produced to look like E2, you would want a smaller amount of E2 at an 80-20 ratio with E3. So you're getting 80% E3 or estriol, which focuses on beta receptor function with just 20% of the estradiol. So you're safely getting this small release of natural bioidentical estrogen, the ovarian form, that E2, but you're getting in a protective balance of that high E3. Does that make sense? I just want to make sure that unpacks. Yes, I think it makes sense. I think it makes more sense when you look at an example of like the um, neurohormone complete plus and you can see kind of the different uh, variations of estrogen that are tested on a salivary test like that. Um, cause a lot of people I think are walking around not knowing there are even different types of estrogen. Right. So, and that's the dance of also I'll, I'll plug right now the Brocco detox. Cause I think it's very relevant. Sure. Um, you know, that's the dance of sometimes we have this misnomer of like, Oh, I'm in perimenopause or menopause, you know, my estrogen must be too low. Um, without even understanding, actually, maybe it might be that your estrone has peaked too high <laughs> and you have to modulate your estrogen expression and you have to increase your antioxidant capacity. So the Brocco detox is super cool because it has a, pre- a preference for the expression of those beta receptors as far as your estrogen activity. It has no direct estrogen activity itself, but helps with the expression and the modulation of the estrogen that is cycling through your body already. Um, so that's a really good kind of root cause modulator at any age cycle to ensure that the three types of estrogen are going to be expressed in balance in your body. Okay, cool. That makes sense. Um, what about other forms? Of- Firms. Firms, yeah. Firms, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so uh, like I said, soy hit the market, you know, um, and I think is the most known. Now, uh, I can never say that G word right. Genestine. I think it is genestine. I think that's right. Is is the main active studied compound that's in soy. And, um, you know, that's where like a lot of these like soy and black cohosh um, types of like hybrid supplement formulas are out there and such. Um, You know, the the biggest thing is the concern with soy, of course, as a whole food um, or even worse as a processed product my hesitancy to recommend soy is that 93 plus percent of it is going to be genetically modified. And this puts high susceptibility to glyphosate, which is a toxin that is used in that GMO crop. Um, And so that in itself, the cost to benefit of using soy as a serum is likely not in our favor. And then the fact that soybean itself has a lot of uh, anti-nutrients in its structure of, of being a legume, um, that that can cause a lot of GI distress. It can exacerbate leaky gut. It can uh, drive imbalance of gut bacteria. And then it also has higher omega-6. So it's kind of more pro-inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory. But with that said, again, extractions of soy have been shown to hit that beta receptor site. Um, so if you're dealing with really severe issues, you might play with fermented soy that is organic. That would be the one that I'd feel safest about as a food intervention. So that would be like tempeh, um, which is going to be the whole soybean that has been um, actively fermented and kind of formed into like patty. Um, it's also going to have vitamin K and biotin and other good 
boost that we get from bacteria action, right? Um, and or miso. Miso has been shown to have some really favorable estrogen regulating activity. So both of those I feel good about, like adding miso to your bone broth, that'd be a good thing. Then there's other supplement tools. Uh, kudzu and red clover have been used in a couple different formulations as non-soy isoflavones, um, also targeting for that beta receptor site, um, which would have an, an inhibition of excess estrogen expression. Always a good thing again. And then turmeric um, is a really cool one to consider. And this is one that I would use, especially like our super turmeric as a baseline defense, because we know it has such a potent detoxifying support and the detox process itself is going to help the body to regulate hormone. We also know that it's going to induce glutathione levels, which is going to help to protect tissues from reactive estrogen metabolites if your body is in a cat and mouse relationship of trying to balance out its estrogen. So you won't get the estrogen dominant effects and you also won't get as dynamic of low estrogen uh, influence. And using uh, something like a super turmeric imbalance with hormone uh, therapy, especially if it's bioidentical or you're using some of these targeted isoflavonoids, it's going to help to also reduce the inflammatory process and it's going to also promote tissue of the vaginal tissue and breast health um, without having to worry about that that alpha receptor positive activity. Okay. Awesome. So turmeric would be a good intervention. Um, anything else to highlight or shall we move on? <laughs> um, so I kind of hit I3C. Yeah. I didn't mention yeah. the term, but when I was talking about Brocco Protect, um, you know, the big elements that are unique about that, again, is that it balances out your estrogenic expression. Um, and, you know, we were talking about Eindol 3 carbonyls, but these compounds themselves are very delicate. And so like an I3C supplement um, can often not get delivered as desired, which is why this is using the whole Brock broccoli sprout with the active enzyme to ensure activation in your body versus trying to create a stabilized molecule that will likely just get oxidized in your system. So again, the, the I3Cs in a whole food form, like from our broccoli seed and sprout combination in the Brocco detox are going to support the detoxification of excess estrogens, balance out the estrogen expression, um, and also reduce xenoestrogens, which we haven't discussed. And that's important too, because remember your plastic um, any plastic water bottle, even if it's BPA-free, has xenoestrogens or synthetic estrogen compounds that leach through that container. And these compounds get stored in our body fat. And as we're low in hormone, we don't want those xenoestrogens being released and modulating our body's balance or being the key that's circulating to target in those keyholes. Sure. So definitely important to go back and listen to, can't think of what episode number, but the one on um, endocrine disruptors, I'll make sure I link it in the show notes for today. Yes, for sure. Okay. Um, and would flax fall into the category of serums or how does flaxseed um, relate? Because I know that's an intervention we'll often use. Yeah. So flax, um, I'm a big fan of. It's it's a very rich dietary source of lignans. Um, and this is a type of family of phytoestrogens. 
Um, again, it's a plant that a phytoestrogen essentially is a plant-based estrogen. So a, a nutrient or a compound that has a similar influence of the female hormone estrogen. And the lignans in flax can have estrogenic and anti-estrogenic effects in the body. And we've seen in urinary metabolites that it has a favorable expression so that it still supports bone health, it supports mood health, it supports the hot flashes without driving the belly fat and the estrogen dominance. Because that's the dance with HRT or hormone replacement therapy is often then the hormone itself isn't isn't monitored <laughs> and maybe your hormone wasn't even tested and you were given a patch, right? And now you went from perimenopause into this estrogen dominant state and you're dealing with a handful of belly fat that you're grabbing onto and you're dealing with tearfulness at a commercial, you know, and you mm -hmm. all of a sudden went to the other end of the spectrum. And so we really need to watch always, always, always again, the expression of these three types of estrogen and then the detox process to regulate excess circulating hormone. You want to sponge up any excess hormone of any kind in the body because otherwise you're just throwing lighter fluid onto a fire that is not burning in the right place. So like going through our 10-day detox, would that be inappropriate? I'm sure we'll get to it probably in our intervention section, but just for a sneak peek, would, peek, would that be a good intervention then kind of early on in menopause or prior to starting some bioidenticals perhaps? Absolutely. I think that's a really good reset for our body in any form of hormone. Again, whether we're talking about our thyroid, testosterone, insulin levels, as well as these sexual female hormones, the 10-day detox is something that I'd highly suggest to kind of get you back to a clean slate and then um, maybe play with some of these modulators like the flaxseed, the uh, Brocco detox, and the um, – what would be another big one to bring? Well, I don't want to open my last – like my big – I have a big strong tool that you guys can probably guess is coming. But you can play with a lot of these upstream players after a detox and likely get the best effects because you've removed all that excess. Sure. So you're, 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 you have less muck, if you will, to deal with when you're regulating expression. Awesome. That makes sense. Um, before we go any further, because we're going deep, deep, deep as usual, uh, let's have a word from our sponsor for today's episode, F-Bomb. Yes. So sponsor number two, you guys loving these two sponsors because we are, and it helps to make our jobs easier. <laughs> um, so I fell in love with F-Bomb is our mid-roll sponsor and probably more towards the end of today's episode because we got ripping. Um, but I fell in love with F-Bomb at the first ever KetoCon. And I really was so stoked that they were a true representative of what I believe to be the foundation of a ketogenic diet whole real food ingredients that provide a delivery of fats to boost your brain, your hormones, and support a keto lifestyle. And yeah, I absolutely love F-Palm as well. I used them all over. I just got back from about 10 days in Ireland. I used them all over Ireland for hiking fuel and car snacks and travel snacks when the food there wasn't so great, which is <laughs> kind of what it's known for. And I came home to a box of some new fun stuff from F-Bomb. Are we allowed to talk about the jars, Allie? We are. Okay. <laughs> um, so they now have started putting their amazing nut butters that come in typically packet form into jars for home use. So you don't have all of the single use prep 
plastics. I still really like the packets for on the go or for even keeping at my desk when I know I'm not leaving the office anytime soon to even go as far as the refrigerator. Um, but they now have, I think, two flavors in the jars. Three. Three. Awesome. Yep. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah. So all of their nut butters, which is what they started with, F-bomb is a line of essentially quality fats, right? So macadamia nut and coconut-based nut butters, as well as premium oils. And we use all of those in my household. It's an awesome, tasty solution to help you with, like Becky said, sustainable nourishment if you're not sure of your food choices when traveling. Um, also providing you that grounding fat versus a carb that's going to create a blood sugar spike or a drop and put your child or yourself into a hypoglycemic hanger attack. Um, I think they're really fantastic to fuel our kiddos' brains and really ground their energy. So Stella gets an F-bomb in every lunch and enjoys squeezing out the pack there. Um, and then they've expanded into a line of crunchy cheese snacks, Keto Crunch, which is a cheese crisp that uses microbial enzymes to form versus like cellulose or any other binders. And just this summer, before they came out with their jars, last thing I just want to mention that they have that's amazing is their pork sticks. It's one of the best textured and flavored fat-dominant meat sticks on the market. Dare I say moist because they're moist. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, for better or like it of that term, that's the best way to describe it. It's an awesome mouthfeel, awesome flavor profile. I love all the things at F-Bomb. So go on over to dropanfbomb.com backslash Allie Miller RD. When you're over there, um, you that'll be my landing page, which will show you my favorite products. And also, um, you will save when you use the code Allie Miller RD at checkout. And always stay tuned on Instagram. There's other promos and such. I'm always throwing your way for F-Bomb. Awesome. And speaking of being fat-fueled, let's dig a little bit into how keto can be supportive of perimenopause and menopause and whether it's a good idea for women who are going through this transition to do keto or if there's any specific considerations there. Yeah. So, you know, one of estrogen's jobs, one of many, bone health, mood stability, cycle regulation, you have it, right, is in the regulation of getting glucose to the brain for fuel. So this is actually one of the potential mechanisms of why women deal with like brain fog, forgetfulness, um, lightheadedness, and um, drops in energy. So this is a big deal when we're going through menopause and estrogen levels are going low. We don't want our brain fuel to drop low either. So when we transition to a low-carb, high-fat ketogenic diet, that is going to provide the high-octane fuel for our brain in the form of ketones, right? Those cross that blood-brain barrier. And they're going to provide us that rocket fuel for mental clarity and more sustained energy. So I think that's an awesome mechanism direct. And then there's also the influence that when we regulate our blood sugar levels, we're less prone towards those body temperature changes, right? So like I was saying with the F-bomb spot, if we're not getting blood sugar spikes, we're probably not getting also blood sugar drops, right? And that hypoglycemic dysregulation can often create like a lot of the symptoms very similar to hot flashes, as well as hunger or lack of satiation, which can make weight gain or weight loss very difficult and weight gain very prevalent. So I think the ketogenic diet's an awesome approach as long as it's whole food and clean. Um, you know, we talked a lot about this with Dr. Anna Kabeca, and we have a lot of similar constructs of both of us are really into getting two to three cups of leafy greens and using whole food-based fats. You might want to put your dairy to the side when you're going through perimenopause 
menopause and menopausal change because why put exogenous or external circulating estrogen through your tank if your body's trying to recalibrate, you know? So you might do a lower dairy form of keto, but I think in general, we need fat to make hormone, right? And that's one of the biggest things to really wrap our minds around when we're looking for hormone balance. Yes. And I think on that note, I think something really important to call out um, that I've for sure observed as a trend is that when we're going through uh, menopause, perimenopause, a lot of women will see cholesterol levels like go way, way up. Or when they're kind of getting to that age, we start to see a big spike in their LDL and maybe their total cholesterol why does this happen and should we be concerned about that? Yes. The cholesterol connection is, I'm so happy you brought that up, Becky, because I swear like every lipid review I'll have, or even, you know, people that are sharing on Instagram or podcast listeners will commonly message me and say, Hey, I'm doing the ketogenic diet or I'm doing this other lifestyle change and I feel amazing, but my cholesterol went up, you know, a hundred points, a pretty astronomical variance. And I'll always ask them, what's going on with your hormones? <laughs> so we actually have an entire episode that is coming out because I posted something about, you know, cholesterol, again, being a steroid hormone and a, a building block and it playing a role as a component of our cell wall, our cell membrane, right? And also having antioxidant properties and other benefits. But we commonly do see, as you just said, LDL total go up when hormone levels are declining rapidly. And LDL also goes up when the body is in a repair mode. So it's taking a step away from that being a bad thing and understanding what is the body trying to repair? How is the body trying to respond to suppression or lows? And, and that's that building block pathway that we will see an increase in. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, the, the, conventional um, treatment of that would be to go to a statin and that can become really dangerous for especially, you know, women in this significant time of hormonal change for sure. Yes, uh, but I think absolutely. <laughs> it's really important to note that there, that fluctuation can happen and it's totally natural and normal. It's your body just like trying to do its thing. So let's exactly. <laughs> yes. And when, when you put in that statin drug and you block that HMO HMA-CoA reductase, uh, that's when you start to get into issues with the steroid building pathway completely, right? Mm -hmm. So you started, you added a medication to lower a number, which might not even be a harmful indication. It's just information, right? And then now you're also dropping the body. What, what other pathways do statin drugs drop? CoQ10. We're seeing a drop in testosterone, which was probably already suppressed. So now we're dealing with more depression, apathy, flat effect, fatigue, which we were already set up for from the low hormone. And that's what the cholesterol was trying to do in the first place. Yep. So yep. <laughs> that's why we have a whole episode yeah. on that. <laughs> exactly. To, to come. Um, so let's transition into a little bit of rapid fire now, just circling back on some of the symptoms of concern um, in terms of how hormonal expression, you know, shifts with age. Let's give some tools to address some of these common symptoms and, and talk a little bit more about supplement interventions and all of the things. So starting with hot flashes and I'll couple together hot flashes and insomnia because a lot of times, you know, the, the hot flashes end up being a reason that perpetuates the insomnia. Yes. So
So my first line of defense here would be relax and regulate. And this is the first time in this episode that I'm mentioning this formula, but relax and regulate is a great intervention for any hormone demand in the body because the myo-inositol, so it has two primary ingredients. It has magnesium bisglycinate and it also has myo-inositol. And the myo-inositol is very nutritional and supportive of the ovaries. Myo-inositol helps with cellular signaling and hormonal communication, but by fueling the ovaries, it's going to give us support for sexual hormone production. It helps to get the body into that parasympathetic reproduce, metabolize, safe place versus that sympathetic fight or flight response. And then the magnesium bisglycinate in there helps to metabolize cortisol. So like I mentioned earlier, cortisol often can be the driver of also the hot flashes or that 3 a.m. waking if our circadian rhythm is tipped incorrectly. And the magnesium bisglycinate is going to help with neuromuscular relaxation, health and depth and quality of sleep. And also that magnesium helps with vasodilation, which is going to relax the blood vessels, which are otherwise constricted, causing the flashing. So that's a great one across the board for quality of sleep, supporting hormone demand and helping the body to get more focused on hormone production as well as mitigating those hot flashes. And then Brocco detox would be the big one because the hot flashes can come from progesterone deficiency as much as they can come from low estrogen. And it's often the shift of that estrone that goes up that hits that alpha receptor, right? That E1 in lieu of the drop of E2. And so we're looking at with the Brocco detox focusing on the metabolism of those estrogenic compounds. And then the third one I'd bring in for hot flashes and insomnia is my sleep support. A couple things there that are important to note. So it has a blend of nervine herbs, and it also has in there uh, melatonin, three uh, milligrams of melatonin per two tablets. So you can start with a really gentle 1.5. But remember, melatonin is an antioxidant and it plays a big role with estrogen metabolism. So even if you're not having difficulty with staying asleep, falling asleep, doing like a 1.5 milligram of melatonin might help with the hot flashes based on the estrogenic influence in the body as well. Okay. Super cool um, synergy there. And and you can even break those tablets in half if you're super sensitive to sleep support like, like I am. You. <laughs> Like, can I get a quarter of this actually? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, even if- in my in my cyclical women, I know this is supposed to be rapid fire, yeah, but real yeah. quick, in okay. my women that are menstruating, when they go towards their time of their cycle where they're estrogen dominant, I'll have them take a, a tablet or a half tablet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might consider even that and using that within your, your hormone cycle. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. What about um, stubborn belly fat? I know that's a big concern with seeing both belly and like the upper thigh fat that you typically are going to associate with menopause. Yes. So I would start with the Brocco detox as the daily tool there. And I would highly recommend though, like we said earlier in the episode, jumping in with a 10 day detox using my reset, restore, renew detox packs, because these are going to help with both phase one and phase two detoxification. So both the activation and the excretion of toxins and help to mop up any of that excess imbalanced circulating hormone. Then the Brocco detox on a daily level, uh, 
somewhere between two to four daily is very helpful to aid with that metabolic function and hormone balance. And then you might even bring in Boost and Burn, which is my liquid supplement of L-carnitine, especially if also dealing with fatigue. This helps to boost your energy production and the conversion of fat as fuel. So if you're doing a low-carb diet and trying to make ketones and struggling, the L-carnitine can drive that body fat metabolism, which will help you to get into that deep freezer reserve of that belly fat that you don't want to wear anymore on your system. Awesome. Um, Osteopenia and osteoporosis. So maybe hit on what the connection is with estrogen and then some solutions. Sure. So we have, you know, estrogen receptors on our bone as well. And when our estrogen levels decline, that has an influence on how our bone cells regulate. So we start to get much more breakdown in bone, um, and this can cause osteopenia, bone thinning, or osteoporosis. So osteofactors is going to be the first line of defense. This is my calcium that has the MCHC, the microcrystalline hydroxycalapatite form. And this is the bone-derived form of calcium, which is going to be most bioavailable for bone recovery and repair and rebuild. I've actually seen women in clinic time and time again whose bone density scans improve from use of two to three a day tablets of the osteofactors. And then the next line of defense would be good quality multivitamin, like my multi-defense, that's going to have a lot of those other mineral cofactors. And then I would also throw in relax and regulate I think I would throw in relax and regulate for all of these areas because that helps to offset the hormone decline again. Awesome. Um, What about just general fatigue, kind of low energy dragginess? Yeah. And, you know, we could probably throw like that depression and apathy and maybe even anxiety in there. So I would start with the B complex there. Uh, You know, a lot of women, even going into perimenopause and menopausal time, had been on some form of uh, hormone replacement therapy, and it might be birth control, which depletes the B vitamins. We know also just over time, we use B vitamins on higher demand for metabolism and for energy production. So my B complex would be a great tool as a one a day. You might even layer in my B12 boost, which is a sublingual, a lozenge that absorbs under the tongue and gives that methylated form of B12, which is a really big energy booster. And then you could layer in the boost and burn, like I mentioned, maybe the cellular antiox. But if it's more of the mood stuff, I'd probably bring in the calm and clear as the next line of defense. And that's going to also help that stress influence in the body. Awesome. And then last but not least, what about vaginal dryness? Yeah. So I used to do grocery store tours when I was early a dietitian. And I remember like the best part would be I'd make people blush when I was talking about coconut oil. Cause I'd always be like, <laughs> grab, I'm sure you interned with me at one of those at some point. Um, but I'd always say, you know, make sure you have a bottle for your bedroom. Yeah. Uh, coconut oil is my favorite household lubricant. And like, you know, my women who were in their perimenopause or menopausal age were all like, Ooh, you know, um, but so true. I think that coconut oil is fantastic. Uh, you know, the caprylic acid in there is also antifungal. So for more prone towards yeast infections, a great lubricant and, you know, it doesn't have any of those, uh, toxins that many of the other over-the-counter lubricants will have that are in a lot of cosmetics. So coconut oil would be my go-to. And then Julva, uh, which we talked about a lot with Dr. Anna Kabeca in her episode, that is her formula that, um, has DHEA in it. Um, it also has like, what is it? Stem cells from Alp Rose, Alpine Rose. Alpine Rose. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Alpine rose stem cells and um, helps with both that thinning of the tissue, the atrophy, as well as as a lubricant. And um, that steroidal support of the DHEA uh, also can help a little bit with the uh, libido and, and sex drive. So that's a great one too. I will put a link in today's show notes for the Jolva. I have a free trial that Dr. Kabeca gave me a code for. So you all can check that out and see how it works for you. Awesome. Any final thoughts, closing thoughts on menopause or have we hit it, hit it all? I mean, I think like every topic that I try to unpack for you guys, we just have to start thinking a little bit deeper and a little bit more investigative when we're going through change in the body and, you know, just using that as information, right? So as our sexual hormone levels decline, we don't want to go into an anti-aging process and put up the floodgates. We want to age gracefully and understand what are the highest shouted symptoms of imbalance? Do we have to modulate the estrogen expression? Do we have to detoxify excess estrogen? Do we have to help the body to feel safe and less stressed? And do we have to approach this from a micronutrient angle? And all of these could be reasonable areas. So I hope from today's episode, I shine, I shone a light. I put a light on <laughs> one of these aha moments for you to make a new strategic change. Awesome. So as always, you can find all of the notes from today's show on AllieMillerRD.com slash podcast. Each podcast has an individual page that you can click through all the links. And if you love today's episode, please hop on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review along with a couple of sentences of why you love the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished Podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.